Hello and welcome to the Wonders of Wellbeing podcast with Amy. place that we need to get to is where we're not thinking about individualized adaptation, but we're talking about neuroinclusive environments that enable individuals to thrive whatever their strengths and challenges. And that by doing so, we're embracing true diversity, difference, and we're enabling everybody to thrive. This evening, I have the joy of chatting with Dr. Claire Hepworth, a HCPC accredited and chartered clinical psychologist. She additionally holds an MSc in Health Psychology, a PhD in Psychology, and is a co-lead for CPD on the Division of Coaching Psychology Committee at BPS. Claire has 20 years of experience in psychology research and clinical practice in the UK, working in NHS services, private practice, and the education sector. Claire has provided consultation, assessment, and psychological therapy to individuals, families, and professionals. Claire provides strategic consultation, coaching, supervision, and training to schools and education professionals with a particular focus on whole school wellbeing through inclusion and trauma-informed practice. Claire and her colleague, Dr. Georgina Taylor, are launching an ADHD consultation service, including assessment, formulation, education, and workplace advisory services and ADHD coaching. Thank you for chatting with me, Claire, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's so lovely. I was just saying to Claire that, gosh, we booked this in so long ago and we sort of joked that, you know, end of April seems so long away. Um, And here we are already, time's just flying by. And just for a little bit of context, I had the pleasure of attending some professional development that Claire ran earlier in the school year. And Claire, I just learned so much through you and I just thought there is so much that you could share that would be extremely valuable to the education space. And I just thought how perfect to have you on to discuss the topic of neurodivergence, a very hot topic at the moment. And whilst it's not necessarily, it's not at all new, it's sort of changing its shape in the education space. So I thought it was really powerful to to get you on and, and to share your thoughts. So I guess a good starting point for us would be what is neurodivergence? Absolutely. And I think it's worth reflecting just that there's likely to be global differences here. And I'm really interested and curious in kind of thinking with you about how this fits differently in in my UK context and, and yours. So the way that we are thinking about neurodivergence is the idea that all of our brains are different and that we have individual strengths and individual challenges and the difference isn't a deficit. So the way that I think about neurodivergence is just about those individual differences that we all have in the way that our brains work when we're thinking about all of our brain's functions, whether that's in terms of problem solving, planning, whether that's thinking about social relationships. So it's about reflecting that natural diversity in the way that our brains work. Yeah, I love that. So beautifully articulated. Um, and I think that's probably a, a global way of, of viewing it for sure. And I guess as we go into some further questions, I guess it's how different countries and obviously different schools are managing it is probably where the biggest difference is. But I think that that term and that that definition you've given is probably quite a global way of, of looking at it. My question is, what is the difference between neurotypical and neurodivergent? One of the things that's really important when we're thinking about neurodiversity and neurotypical is that, first of all, the non-clinical terms. So the clinical services and medical profession 
think a little bit differently. And what we're trying to really understand more about is what do those terms mean for individuals and neurotypical is often used to describe the most commonly presenting pattern or ways that the brain responds and that might be what is most common for your developmental stage. We're using neurodivergence to just reflect that neurodiversity in brain function across every other individual. So neurotypical is used to describe what we might be expecting to be most commonly presenting and neurodiversity is reflecting that range across everybody else. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are the different types of neurodivergence? Then, you know, there are lots of different thoughts about this. So the most kind of commonly kind of considered neurodevelopmental and from a clinical term, neurodevelopmental conditions or neurodevelopmental needs that might fit with neurodiversity would be autism, would be attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, tics and Tourette's dyslexia, dysgraphia, but there's a lot of conversations at the moment about whether that should be broadened out to also include things like obsessive compulsive disorder or anxiety disorders and how they fit with this definition. Do a lot of them tend to coexist? Like if exist at the same, like some students would have a few of them? Absolutely. So what we're we're absolutely seeing is that we just don't know enough yet. Mm-hmm. We don't know enough yet about how the human brain works and we haven't yet got good enough diagnostic assessment tools. Now we're definitely seeing co-relationships there. So absolutely for some individuals, some of the patterns of of strengths and challenge may overlap. So we might see, for example, that a young person with ADHD may also be more likely to experience tics and Tourette's, maybe more likely to experience dyslexia. But what we don't really know yet is the functions behind that and the explanations as to why those relationships truly exist and the patterns of the, the true diversity in the brain. Isn't that amazing that like in 2023, we're still, still obviously learning so much. We're going to learn for the rest of our lives. I know that, but it also fascinates me with how far we've come across so many things that the human brain is so complicated that there's still so much that we're trying to uncover and it just blows my mind. And this is one of the biggest things I, one big thing I took away from the professional development I did do with you was just how complicated the space is, but in such a you give it with such energy and so much enthusiasm of like it's such a it is such a positive thing that this is what we know and this is what we're getting to but I just love how complicated it is and that there's still so much for us to learn. We're absolutely the tip of the iceberg but what's really great is that people are starting to have really good conversations Mm. and also not to accept the status quo and to, to push further and to say you know we need better research we need better resourcing we need to be exploring this with much more depth and clarity than we've been able to yeah it feels like it's the start of a really important drive for change yeah for sure and i think neurodivergent the word i probably is referred to a lot more in international schools than it was in australian schools it sort of wasn't a term that was used in staff meetings or in student plans or it's probably more yeah i've probably noticed it more in the international circuit 
but that doesn't mean that they're, you know, schools aren't supporting it in Australia, but just terminology, as you said, is just a little bit different. And so I was sort of a little bit like, hang on a minute, what is this? And then we sort of sat down with the support team and I was like, oh yes, okay, yeah, I, I do know all of this. It's just different terminology being used. What would you say with children you work with, schools that you're working with, parents that you're working with, are the biggest challenges that neurodivergent students are facing in a school setting at the moment? Absolutely. So there's a number of factors. The first one is, of course, that COVID and post-COVID life has had a really differential impact. And so what we've seen for some students is that being out of the school environment during COVID, being at home, being able to learn in a quieter, more personalized, specific environment has really enabled them to thrive. And therefore the return back into education has been a real challenge. And we've certainly seen in the UK a a real increase in struggles in attending school for particularly for those with neurodiversity. For others, being home has brought a lot of challenges, being unable to access a lot of the resources and scaffolds that enabled you to manage the differences has been a challenge. So not being able to access exercise, not being able to access the social relationships that are really supportive to you, not having the structure and routine. So for for many individuals, there's been a really individualized response to what the needs have looked like, how they've changed over time. And, And I think we're really still seeing the impact here as we're starting to really think about how do we adapt the school environment on in response to what we've observed during that COVID period. The other big impact that I've observed is that schools are getting busier and noisier. <laughs> Class sizes are increasing dramatically at the same time as we're having a reduction in resources, a reduction in staffing, and all of those things have an impact in when we're really thinking about the impact on sensory sensitivity, for example, in a, a school environment, we've really got to be thinking about how we make and create neuroinclusive classrooms that are accessible for all, that are enabling young people with a whole range of different strengths and challenges to really thrive. The other part of the picture that we're seeing is that reduction in resources. At the same time, we're seeing really, really lengthy waiting lists. And um, certainly in the UK, we might be having waiting lists to access services of, you know, three, four years to begin to explore diagnostic assessment and access clinical services. So families and young people are really struggling to access the the understanding, the care, the assessment of their needs that really need to be able to thrive. That's having a knock-on impact in terms of helping schools to be able to make those assessments and really understand an individual strengths and needs. So we're having a real crisis in the UK in terms of being able to have the right expertise and the right support. And families are, are really feeling a real sense of hopelessness and stuckness about where do we go from here and what does this mean and and how do I make sure that I create an environment that enables my child to thrive? Yeah, for sure. My goodness, that is a really long wait list. And I know that here in Japan at the moment, there's probably about a six to 12 month wait, but going beyond three years is, is really scary. And I was talking to a lady in the UK a couple of months ago who runs a counselling service for schools. And I didn't realise that in the UK schools, state schools don't have counsellors on staff and that it has to be provided by an external body or, you know, provider. 
And that totally blew my mind that there's no one in the school system in each school and on each campus because I know that all over the world where that does exist, it's still not manageable. So I just can't imagine that not having that interim person, yeah, it just blows my mind. I mean, there's geographic inequalities, absolutely, and real differences across the UK in terms of support and investment. There are big programs being rolled out, piloted across the UK at the moment for education mental health workers to be located as a a service that works between the NHS and the education system and that's being really well regarded by schools at the moment both in terms of being able to offer that immediate consultation and support and be able to have access into the support system but we are really struggling in the UK to be able to access support fast enough locally you know in the right way with the right level of expertise in people really need and deserve to thrive yeah how would you say schools are doing in relation to supporting neurodivergent students what's working well and what what could be improved i think there is real interest and real passion and dedication to do this right to be able to look across the whole school system. There's been a real embracing of the government has funded access to whole school wellbeing training, mental health leads in in all schools. So there's been a real embracing of learning more, (laughs) understanding more, being able to embed and understand that what we're talking about is changing school and education culture, um, that inclusion is everybody's business and that actually what we're talking about in order to create an environment that enables everyone to thrive is an inclusive, accessible environment that's also trauma-informed for all. So there's been a real shift in thinking around school culture and thinking around everything from how do we relate to students, how do we understand individual need, how do we offer that support. So there's definitely passion and interest and dedication there, but we're really struggling with resourcing. And, you know, we have staffing difficulties across schools and the education system um, in the UK. We are are struggling to manage the multi-agency relationships with external services. So when needs are identified within school, it can be a complicated process to be able to engage the right systems outside of the education system. So there's definitely interest, there's definitely curiosity. There is a lot of investment within schools themselves to be driving forward change, to be thinking about how to make create accessible classrooms, to be really thinking about the language used, to be really thinking about understanding each individual's need. But there are lots of challenges and barriers that need to be overcome for us to get to the place that we want to be. Yeah, goodness. I think resources is definitely a global issue when it comes to, to education in general, but neurodivergence for sure. And I think another thing that schools and and teachers and parents sometimes find tricky is, especially if a student is recently diagnosed, is helping them understand what it means, not just to themselves and in their home setting, but in a school setting. And how do they become comfortable using certain strategies and techniques to support themselves and not feel like they're the only one in the room doing it or everyone's going to look at me or all of that stuff that comes with, for them, all of a sudden a diagnosis and some strategies given to a classroom teacher and their life at school changes a little bit as well. And trying to help support the family with how they bring it up with their children at home, but then how it's addressed at school, I think is a whole nother area and another section of how schools can and are obviously supporting it, but where there's a huge gap, I think, in, in a lack of 
understanding or, or professional development in that area for, for educators because as lots of people say educators put so many hats on you know take one hat off put another one on take it off like all day and that's a big hat to be putting on and taking off is to help a student who has recently and a family who have recently received some kind of diagnosis especially if the initial assessment came via your suggestion that also is often quite a, a heavy and hard thing to manage and majority of parents take the news as well as they can and it's a slow process so it's sort of time for them to process but there are others that don't take it as well and that's a really hard space for a classroom teacher to be in for a parent to understand that it is coming from the greatest of, of hearts um, you know uh, so I think that's probably another area that educators and schools are, are, are chased of are faced with as a challenge when it comes to supporting neurodivergent students what are your what are your thoughts with that? Absolutely. And I think one of the biggest challenges is, of course, that that we need to be individualised and needs-led and not diagnosis-led. And actually, what we're really talking about here is the relationships and having the capacity and the space to be able to provide individualised education that is based around what an individual's strengths and, and needs are within that environment. And so it's really complicated whilst incredibly helpful for educators to be interested in and curious about and learning more about neurodiversity more generally. Actually, what we really want to be able to get to a place of is really understanding every individual for themselves and being able to have those conversations on a continued basis and learning together because what works for one student may not be supportive for another student what someone feels comfortable with may feel very different and if we create classrooms that embraced diversity and that are neuro accessible to all then we wouldn't necessarily be talking about the same level of individualized adaptations but how can we really think about how the environment can be less disabling mm -hmm. to everybody so if we're thinking more about how can we create a classroom that is aware of sensory sensitivities. How can we work in smaller group spaces so that we can be more targeted? How can we make sure that all of the materials we use for teaching are verbal and, vis and visual and that we are really thinking about individual ways of communicating with students? What we're talking about there is real inclusivity. The place that we need to get to is where we're not thinking about individualized adaptation, but we're talking about neuroinclusive environments that enable individuals to thrive, whatever their strengths and challenges. And that by doing so, we're embracing true diversity, difference, and we're enabling everybody to thrive. Yeah, incredible. And we come back to systems and schools being massive living systems and there's so much that schools have the potential to do and that I don't think that there would be many people on every campus that would be against trying to do that. It's just resources and space and time and a whole bunch of a whole bunch of things that make that almost feel impossible at the moment. And it's great that there are people out there who are advocating for it, who are passionate about it, who are sharing this with schools and educators and making people think about things differently because it's quite an overwhelming thought. Like even when you just said then, you know, working in smaller groups and sensory space and it's like, gosh, you'd need so many more bodies in the room to get that individualized small group teaching in a neurodivergent environment. 
and to have that sensory support that's there would mean, you know, changing the physical appearance of classrooms. And all of that is very like amazing, like sounds awesome. But I guess it's just one of those things. It's like, where do you start? And I guess it's that concerning thing of like, how long is it going to take? And then by the time we do that, where is the world then? And where is the science? You know, there's all this research that comes out and, you know, it can take education 10, 15 years to implement the things that, you know, are in the research to actually be practiced on a daily basis or being able to be implemented in schools and then you think my goodness by the time we're doing that as a as an education system new and bigger and better things are going to be out there that we've totally missed the point on so I guess that's something that as an educator is a frustrating thing because there's just so much that needs to be done in a system that is causing lots and lots of barriers. That's really interesting isn't it in my experience where where schools are really successful at this is where it's driven by the school mm-hmm. and it's driven internally and where there's a real embracing of where we want to get to is that we're we're co-designing educational spaces with individual needs mm. in mind from the start and with individuals who have been finding it more difficult to access those environments. When we're talking about increasing numbers of students struggling to get into education, to access education, we need to be coming from a place where it might take really big systemic change mm. to be able to create environments that that allow individuals with neurodiversity to thrive. But I think there's really small, tiny steps that can be really effective just straight from the start by by asking individuals what they want and need, by thinking a little bit more around even things like timing of the day. So just the difference between thinking about the numbers of students passing down a hallway at a particular time of day or directing students in a different order around the school or staggering lunch breaks so that there are times where the the school is less busy. So things that may not require financial resources, Mm. but might be able to be implemented directly with changes to the school culture can have a really powerful impact. And you can see really immediate change by putting some of those things into place. But it's really important that we recognize that when we're talking about neurodiversity, we're now talking about quarter of the population here. And we really still don't have good enough tools for diagnosis. We don't have good enough tools for understanding the needs. And and we're, by really recognizing that, we're actually talking about the fact that we have been excluding from education, from the workplace, a really large part of our population. You know, we have been making, we as an environment, it's an environment, it's attitudes, it's organisations that disable. Mm-hmm. And so making those changes, enabling people to thrive, enabling access to resources in the right places at the right time, we would be expecting to have much earlier support and intervention and much less need for the intensity of crisis services, severe mental health services, Mm -hmm. and some of the challenges that we're seeing further down the line. So it's a really big challenge for education. It's a really big challenge for the whole system. But I think there's some really important conversations happening at the moment to say, how can we create education for the future that is truly inclusive for all? Yeah. For sure. And I think this leads perfectly into the last question I've got for you about what would you say is the future of neurodivergence? 
I feel that it's really important that we're recognizing that we're starting to understand we're seeing just individual difference, that all of us have strengths, that all of us have challenge, and that we can be more or less supported by the scaffolds and resources and relationships around us. The real emphasis needs to be in coming together as a community to really embrace true inclusivity, to be able to understand ourselves, to be able to have a good sense of what works for us as individuals. We need to have access to the right support systems that are are going to enable us to make those assessment of need. But we need to be thinking about societal and cultural interventions as a huge priority for embracing access in the future, rather than only thinking about individual adaptation. You know, this has got to be a two-handed approach where we're really thinking about how do we embrace and understand best individual need? How do we get the right support at the right time for individuals? And how do we also really think about the big cultural changes that we need to create an environment that's truly accessible for all? Claire, there's so many incredible gold nuggets in everything that you've shared today and and no doubt listeners are going to get a lot out of it. And as I said at the beginning, you know, these are not necessarily brand new terms to educators and it's not that educators aren't already aware of some of the challenges, but it's always incredible to hear someone who works in that space outside of a school. I know you're helping schools and supporting schools, but it's always good to hear it from a different perspective because no doubt teachers could have answered all of these questions from their their experience, but amazing, amazing to hear it from, from yours tonight. How could listeners connect with you online? Absolutely. Well, I'm on LinkedIn. Please hop over, find me, have a chat. I'm always open and welcoming of conversations and I can be found my websites on drclairehepworth.com and dowhatworks.co.uk. Awesome. Claire, what an incredibly insightful episode that was. And I I really appreciate you jumping on for a chat and sharing your knowledge and your expertise um, with us all. And I know, as I said, there's lots of educators out there who will be listening to this and who will really appreciate your perspective and your knowledge in this area. It's incredible to have people like yourself and the team that you work with to be focusing and helping schools in this space, because this is one area of what schools systems are needing to focus on. And so no doubt it's extremely overwhelming for school leaders in particular to try to pick where to start but inclusion is huge and extremely important so thank you so much for everything that you have done and that you continue to do in this space to create a better future for our lifelong learners thank you and and i really want to just say thank you because it's such an important conversation to have and I have only experienced really positive, welcoming conversations with education professionals. And I think there's a a real need to work collaboratively together um, in these areas. So thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Thank you. No worries. Thank you.